and more importantly, to understand and not be afraid of it because we're not we're not introducing anything that the pig doesn't already have. We're just making it more prevalent. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Zinpro, Essential Trace Minerals, Exceptional Performance. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Swine management to the next level. Cloudfarms.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Max Rothschild, who is the C.F. Curtis Distinguished Professor Emeritus from Iowa State University. How are you today, Max? Uh, I'm just fine, Laura. Nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. Well, Max, I know you uh, fairly well, but some of our listeners may not. So before we really start talking about uh, the topic at hand today, maybe give a little bit of an introduction about yourself. Okay, that's that's fine. So I'm recently retired from Iowa State uh, University. Uh, I still do some swine consulting. Uh, my background is uh, <clears throat> I actually was born in the Midwest and uh, had my first experience with pigs when I was about four years old. Uh, I moved to California with my family. Uh, my dad was a chemist. And when the aerospace boom he hit, he went to California like all good people who wanted to work in the aerospace industry. And I grew up and went to UC Davis. I had a master's from the University of Wisconsin and a PhD from Cornell University. I taught a couple of years at the University of Maryland in the dairy science department. I taught animal breeding and genetics courses, did work with dairy cattle. And then uh, in 1980, I came to Iowa State University to be one of uh, uh, three pig breeders that were there at the time, myself, Lauren Christian, and John uh, John Mabry, who came a little later, and uh, we worked primarily on issues related to pig breeding and pig genetics. And then later on, uh, I moved a little bit over to do molecular genetics and genomics of the pig. And in the last few years of my career, I've been doing more international work, both in Africa and Asia. And this includes both pig genetics and <clears throat> livestock genetics of other species. So I have a broad background. I have a real interest in helping people produce pigs more efficiently and uh, with better care and with better genetics. Well, that's a perfect summary. And I know you've certainly had a very well accomplished career. And so I think today's conversation will be very informative for a lot of our audience. Um, I'll date ourselves a little bit, Max. I can remember uh, coming into your office as an undergrad and you and I working on a project together with this weird thing called the World Wide Web and, and trying to create some information about the pig genome. And, and so I think, you know, it, it's kind of interesting to have this conversation now, years later, and, and really kind of stop for a moment and let's talk about the pig genome. You know, we, what do we know today about the pig genome? Uh, that's a great question, Laura, and I remember the, <clears throat> those days as well. It's been, <clears throat> pardon me, it's been some time since that started. So about 1987, we started talking about doing more than just uh, looking at the pig as a black box. 
where we couldn't see inside the pig and see the genetics and the genomics of the pig itself. And so we were starting to get to the point that people were talking about individual genes and chromosomes, the part the genes sit on. And uh, I was uh, named uh, National uh, Pig Genome Coordinator. And for about 20 years, I ran to help run the U.S. Pig Genome Project. So you can think of the pig genome uh, as really following the genomic uh, information that was first discovered in humans and published in, in about the year 2000. But we in the pig have been publishing and working to discover some of the 35 to 40,000 genes that the pig must have, and more importantly, to discover what those genes actually contribute to, how they affect the production, the welfare of the pig, the health of the pig, its eating habits, its behavioral habits. And so much has happened in the world. You know, I'll bet many of our listeners have even done some DNA work on themselves. They've, uh, they've joined a company like Family Tree DNA and look for relatives they didn't know they had, or 23andMe, or one of the other companies out there. And in fact, at one time, actually, I was one of the uh, original owners of Family Tree DNA, and I worked with people on human human DNA, and you always find something interesting. Sometimes stuff you didn't hope to find, but in other cases, uh, we find uh, relatives we didn't have or know about. We find out that we might be uh, susceptible to disease, uh, certain diseases in humans. And the same thing appears in, in breeding stock in pigs. So the pig genome effectively opens up that black box that hid the genetics of the pig that we can only guess about by its performance. And now we can look at individual genes and try and predict uh, performance without even having to measure performance in some cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, I think that's a great summary of what the pig genome is. And you know, one of the things that I think always fascinated me was how do you know what that gene does? Right. I, I heard you say here, well, we had some human information. And so we were able sometimes to line up what we see in the pig genome in terms of a sequence and say that might be similar to humans. But obviously, pigs have unique genes. So maybe help the audience understand a little bit about how do you go about the process of figuring out what a gene really does in the animal? That's a great question. So. <clears throat> Over time, the methods we use have, have improved markedly. When we started out, we, we often just uh, crossed animals and we used anonymous uh, genetic markers. And we followed those anonymous genetic markers through the various crosses from the parents to the F1s, the, cross, the crossbred, to, and to their offspring. And then we looked at and we said, well, this marker always seems to appear to be with fast growing or this marker always appears to be with uh, fat pigs. And so those markers were like uh, anonymous markers in the, on, on the chromosomes, very much, much like mileage markers along the highway or kilometer markers along the highway if you live in a country that doesn't use miles. So those are just anonymous markers. But as time went on, we then were able to start sequencing the genome. And by sequencing, we're unraveling, if you like, the DNA of the pig from the chromosome and then putting it together. So in in effect, it's a little bit like taking a book, cutting it into pieces, and then reassembling the pages until you can read each word. And that sequencing took uh, 
in the pig a large number of years. It's not trivial. Uh, and we, from that, we were able to get at least the base sequence that allows us to then predict uh, to, to then predict what some of those genes do. We also used an approach called a candidate gene approach. And this was an approach that my lab used. So we might pick a gene in which the sequence was known in the human, for instance. And I used one called estrogen receptor. Everybody in the world ought to know that estrogen is an important home hormone. It controls a number of uh, effective uh, uh, reproductive issues in, in females, humans, pigs, other species. And the receptor is a little bit like a catcher's glove and the hormone is the ball and the glove catches it. Well, that receptor I started looking at in the pig and I soon discovered that it was associated when I had two forms of the receptor. I looked at those forms and I compared litter size. In one form, very high litter size. In one form, lower litter size. So the, the, the genomics person is looking at the different forms of the genes, those are called alleles, and when they come in pairs, and those are called genotypes. So we look at different genotypes and ask the question, does this genotype usually produce more pigs and this one less, or does this genotype produce faster growth and this one less? So if you like, sequencing is kind of the holy grail of trying to understand what's going on beneath that black box that, that we've, we've, we've finally opened up to look at the DNA in the pig. And so um, as time goes on, we're learning more about that. And more importantly now, we're using those different genetic markers, both real and anonymous, if you like, uh, to predict the performance of future generations. And this is something called genomic selection. That's uh, at least theoretically was around for about eight or 10 years. But in the pig industry, it's just now being used by the leading companies to predict and help them select the best animals to be there in their nucleus forms to, to then, to then uh, pass on the traits that they want to, uh, to pass on to their customers. So what I, what I would remind uh, pig uh, producers are that they're using the commercial stock, but the breeding companies and the breeders, they're creating the, the, the animals that are the elite animals, and then they pass those genes on to animals for multiplication and eventually for, for commercial use. Mm -hmm. And we generally say that takes, what, three years to go from, from the elite animals down to commercial, or is there a different time frame? Well, at least three years. Uh, a lot depends on on, on uh, the size of the company and the size of the nucleus herds and how fast they get to the multipliers. But three to five years, and we can pass those on. A generation interval is, is one year. So one year in the, elite, in the uh, nucleus, one year in the multipliers, one in the commercial. So that's the minimum, but three to five years to pass on. And so this is what we often talk about as genetic lag. The improvements made in the nucleus herds uh, are advanced, and then in the commercial herds, they lag behind, but they're still making the same progress, but just a little bit behind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Perfect. That's actually a really good description, so thank you for that. Um, one of the things that kind of came to mind as you were describing this whole process of, of how we've moved from, from one step to where we're at today is 
what did you learn? What, when you were going through this process, what did you learn that surprised you the most? Well, I think what I learned uh, basically is that the pig uh, is a very complex animal, which I, I knew anyway. But I think what I learned is that many of the genes that affect, that affect humans have similar effects in, in, in livestock, uh, including the pig. So while the pig is perhaps only 85% similar with its DNA to a human, many of the genes have similar uh, effects. They don't have the same forms of the gene. Uh, a pig ESR gene doesn't exist. It has some of the same uh, form as a human pig estrogen receptor gene, but it's not exactly the same. And so in the since the pig and, and humans have uh, diverged evolutionarily for millions and millions of years, what we see, in fact, is that there are special mutations in the in the pig ESR gene that help it to produce more piglets or less piglets. And, and more importantly, what we, what I think we really surprised me, I think the most is how genes operate in different backgrounds. So I, I can give you an example of that. The estrogen receptor gene in the highly prolific Chinese pig, uh, the two genotypes produce a, a two and a half, three pig uh, difference. In large white pigs, which interestingly uh, come from England, and the Chinese pig went into was in England in the late 1700s and probably passed their form of the gene into large white pigs, large white or, or American Yorkshire, whatever you want to call it. That effect is not two and a half, three pigs now. It's only about uh, eight tenths of a pig difference. We say, well, it's the same form of the ESR gene. That's true, but it's in a different genetic background. And one of the things that I keep reminding producers of, you can buy the best genetics, but unless you let those genetics uh, thrive, you, you give them the opportunity to express themselves, it doesn't happen. And the ESR is a great example. In herds with very low management levels, no difference between the two genotypes. In herds with incredible incredibly good uh, management and and in uh, uh, those herds the same uh, ESR genotypes will differ way beyond the average 2.3 or 2.5 pigs for a litter so one of the things that I, I try and tell producers is you can buy the very best breeding stock can you provide them with the environment and the management level so they can completely express their genetics and genomics ability and and sadly, in some cases, that doesn't happen. So we need to encourage producers to think about the best ways to manage the genetics that they've spent good money on so they get the most out of those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point, right? Genotype only. Genotype plus environment equals our phenotype, right? So exactly. uh, where exactly. are you putting them? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, yeah, that's the, actually a really good point. The prediction ahead, these days is the prediction these days is that the breeding industry, on average, across all the breeding companies, are producing a, probably about a three to three and a half dollar improvement per year based on genetics and genomics. However, it's not clear that the producers are getting that full three and a half dollars per year, and it has to do with management, feeding, luck, a variety of things. Mm -hmm. 
That's interesting. I didn't know that number. So that's actually a good one to kind of keep in your mind for, for an idea of genetic progress. Um, as we're kind of talking through some of this, one of my other questions is, is what's on the horizon? So you, you've talked a little bit about what the genetic companies are starting to do more of. So where do we see all the, the information about the pig genome and the technologies that we have? Where do we see that going with the pig industry or any animal agricultural sure. industry? So in the present, we're talking about breeding companies using genomic selection to improve the efficiency of selection and the accuracy of selection. So they may improve accuracy of selection by as much as 35 to 50% with genomic selection. So that's, that's in the present. In the near future, what we'll see is that more emphasis will be placed on traits that, uh, that have in the past not really responded to selection because they're so hard to measure. Disease resistance, uh, meat quality will make bigger improvements in meat quality, though there have been some good improvements in that will make uh, uh, more improvement in traits associated with welfare, probably. So that's going to be uh, an improvement. The, the other thing that's happening right now, and I think it's going to revolutionize the industry, is the, are, are the traits that we measure. So if you go back uh, 20 years, we weigh them and we weighed them. We measured back fat with either a probe 30 years ago or a very poor ultrasound. And in the last few years, good ultrasound is being used. And we, we measured feed at the uh, feed by pan, and now we meet, measure feed in individual feeders. But what's going to change is we're going to start taking traits using cameras, using heat sensors, using individual pig identification with all this new information that's out there. And this, this uh, new phenotyping, if you like, is going to produce new traits. So we should be better able to, to, to measure traits related to appetite, health. Uh, we should be do a better job of heat detection. And these traits will eventually percolate their way through and be used as traits that we can select for breeding stock. Now, this is all within arguably the next five to 10 years. What's really going to break through is when... Um, uh, when we start getting approval for something called gene editing. So I think most producers know uh, because they feed their their animals uh, genetically modified uh, corn. So there's no approval, essentially, uh, maybe one or two cases of approval for genetically modified animals to be in the food system. But gene editing is different. Instead of modifying it broadly by pushing a gene from some other species into the pig. What we're doing then instead is we're, we're making slight edits to the pig genome to change their efficiency, improve disease resistance, and so on. And when that gets approved, those gene-edited pigs will provide some real opportunities for improved production. The first one on the horizon is uh, 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 resistance to pur to purs that's that's available uh, it's not been approved but uh, one company is working hard on that other companies are working on on that disease and other aspects so what's required for that to happen is somebody has to discover the individual gene that controls the trait and then modify the gene through what we call editing and 
it's my guess, uh, because I don't think anybody can predict that several countries will start approving that uh, gene-edited pigs in the near future. And as we get more genes that we know affect traits, then we'll we'll be doing that. And, and there's some candidates out there. We know there's some genes that affect PCV2. Some excellent work done at the University of Nebraska to show that. So that may, might be another one. There are genes that affect um, meat quality. Well, the beneficial form of that gene is mostly, for argument's sake, in Duroc's and Berkshire's. It's not in Yorkshire's or large white. So somebody could create a gene-edited pig in those breeds and then use those in the breeding system. So these things are all certainly possible. They're a little farther down the line because they require uh, federal approval. In the U.S. And in, and in other countries, they require their government approval. Mm -hmm. And I think you bring up kind of an interesting point there because when I've heard of the PERS gene-edited pigs, for example, it, it is that we created a nick in the DNA, we opened it up, we let it heal like DNA normally heals. It just happened to heal differently than expected, and that created the mutation that then that pig is now PERS-resistant. But some of what I'm hearing you might actually be, we, we might take the gene out of the Burke or the Duroc and put it into a different breed of pig. Is that what I'm hearing or am I mistaken? There, there's a gene in the pig that's, uh, that's associated with, with uh, meat quality. And that gene, the beneficial allele is almost fixed in Berkshire's and very high in Duroc's, but very low in the others. So we could crossbreed to, to to get that gene moved into the other breeds. Or what we could do is do gene editing within those breeds. We're not going to move a gene. They have the gene. They just don't have the right form of the gene. I got you. And what the editing would do is create the right form. So what's important is somebody has to discover what gene controls the trait, what form of the gene is beneficial, and then ask the question, how do we get that into a majority of our pigs? Might be by crossbreeding, might be by gene editing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that, because I know there's lots of different, quote, versions of gene editing, and I think it's important for people to understand and be able to communicate what we're talking about with pigs, because that is definitely different than maybe creating a plasmid and, and putting a gene in and, and doing things like that. Yeah, the, the, the days of gene insertion to make transgenics, we're, we're done with that. What we, what we, we've moved on to something that's considerably, if you like, more, uh, more consumer friendly because you, you're not adding genes to the pig. You know, they all, the old worry was, well, if I put a human gene into a pig and I eat pork. Am I, am I a cannibal? Of course not. It's only one gene out of 35,000, but never mind. If that's your perception, fine. All we're doing here is taking the the natural genes of the pig and and uh, making a snip here and a slight alteration, and and that produces the the trait of interest that we want. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thank you for that. I think that's like I said. I think that's really important for our audience to kind of understand is because again they might be more familiar with that that uh, plasmid version, which we no longer do, and so I think it's it's really good for them to understand the new process and what gene editing really means. And more importantly, to understand and not be afraid of it, because we're not, we're not introducing anything that the pig doesn't already have. We're just making it more prevalent. Yeah, that's a great, great point there, Max. 
Um, so as we kind of think through this, what what do you envision in the next, well, we've talked about five to 10 years, but let's look a little bit farther out. So 20 years from now, where do you see the genetic advances that we're talking about today or even happening five to 10 years from now? Where do we see that impact in the spine industry? Where do you think that's going to be? Well, I, I think the first thing we'll see is healthier pigs. And the reason for that is what, what I uh, think is going to happen and what's been talked about for years, but I think finally uh, it may come come to fruition, is something what we call vaccine-ready pigs. So we all know that that some people respond, uh, if you think about yourself and the recent COVID, we know that some people respond to the vaccine uh, differently than other people. Some people had a terrible reaction, but maybe that reaction gave them more protection and other people had a lesser reaction and maybe they got lesser protection. The same thing happens when we vaccinate pigs. The vaccine producer tries to produce an amount of vaccine that produces a uniform response. But we know there's genetic differences to vaccination. So if you can think kind of uh, one way to do this is why not select pigs that respond better to the vaccine and therefore the vaccine will be more effective and in, and in fact will have uh, more more. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, less susceptible pigs in, in the industry. So vaccine ready pigs is another. Another area is certainly uh, you can sell commodity pork. And that's what most of us eat is, is the pork chop that we get from the from the uh, from the supermarket or from from the butcher. But the real money is in niche products. And so one idea might be to produce a specific genotype of corn, for instance, and that's fed to a specific genotype of pigs, and that produces a specific product that somebody sells at three, four, five times what the the uh, the, the usual price of, of pork is. And so you can think of this as what I call vertical genomics, uh, the right genetics to feed, the right animal to feed it to, and the right product to produce. Now, you might say that's a dream. Well, not really, um, because it's been happening for years in Spain, Iberical ham. You feed acorns to a specific breed of pigs and you produce uh, uh, Iberico uh, ham. That, that's a product that sells for an enormous amount of money. Well, we could be doing this with some other things. So we could be tailoring this to produce high-end chops, uh, 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 loins, and, and other products that would be extremely useful. And so um, w that's one thing that I think we'll start to do. The other thing, of course, is we're going to produce uh, animals that are more uh, resilient to disease. They're more resilient to changes in their management so that there's no welfare issues. Uh, so those are some of the things that I see five to 20 years down the road. And we're also going to continue to produce pigs that are more feed efficient uh, and and. Uh, we're probably going to have pigs that maybe require less water, less feed, uh, you know. So those are all things that will uh, improve the environment. And we already know, for instance, that if you can improve feed efficiency, pigs produce less manure. Now, this is a very controversial subject because most people in the outside the pig industry would say, well, we don't want manure. It's no good. It's a waste. Well, here in Iowa, of course, manure is a product that people want. They use it uh, instead of a, a commercial fertilizer. So it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. We can certainly have pigs produce less manure 
and use less feed. And in some environments, that might be preferred. In other environments, it might be preferred that they just grow faster. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. It's a very good point, Max. Well, um, I see your time is actually wrapping up. It's gone very quickly for me. Um, so just before we kind of go into those those key questions that we ask all of our guest speakers, I'd like to have you maybe wrap up with a couple of key takeaway points that you'd like our audience to, to go away with today. Okay. So uh, pig breeding has come a long way from weighing and measuring pigs to now using uh we, we sample their DNA, we use it to predict uh, their genomic values, and this is used to predict uh, their worth, and breeding stock is improved that way, and efficiency and accuracy is improved. From, if you're a consumer of that genomics and those pig and that breeding stock, you need to do your best job to manage it, manage it so that you, in fact, get the complete uh, uh, genetics out of those pigs. If they can't uh, express their their genetic worth, you're not getting your money's worth when you buy breeding stock. So that's an important point. No matter how good a pig you buy, uh, you know, if you bought a Cadillac and you don't put the right gasoline in it, it's still going to chug along the road. So you got to, if you're going to buy a superstar of a pig, then you got to manage and feed it well enough so things things uh, turn out the way you want. The future's bright. We're going to try and produce pigs that that uh, are more disease resilient uh, and uh, uh, less susceptible, and they're going to produce a better product that the consumer will like. So I think the future is bright. Pig production is bright. And uh, genetics and genomics play an enormous role in this. Yeah, great. Great summary, Max, for sure. It is time to our famous three. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Eastman Animal Nutrition. Visit EASTMAN.com. Adiseo is a worldwide leader in animal nutrition, providing nutritional solutions and services which fuel predictable profits. Genesis, the first power in genetics. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Well, um, one of the things we like to do with all of our guest speakers is really just ask you a couple of questions, um, something that the audience really seems to enjoy. The first question we like to ask is, is there a book that, that you consider your go-to as a swine resource that you would recommend to the to listeners? Well, that's a that's a loaded question, Laura, because I'm the editor for a book called The Genetics of the Pig, edition to, uh, and we have two editions out. And I think for any, it, it, it's frankly not very difficult reading, and it covers nearly every subject on genetics and genomics in the pig. And uh, it really needs to be redone. And uh, we had talked about doing that that uh, in the last few years, but but we haven't gotten it done yet. But that's the go-to book. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Perfect. How about something that you recently read or you're reading that's not related to pigs that you think um, would be fun for the audience to, to read? Well, I'm a, I'm a mystery nut and I read all kinds of them. I'm reading uh, John San, uh, Sanford's latest one. He writes uh, all the Prey series about Lucas Davenport, who's an investigator. But I actually read uh, a, a book called The... Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember who the author is now. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm reading some uh, some historical fiction, and uh, one of the books is called The Horse, 
and that's about looking at at a a, a, a thoroughbred. I'm 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 uh, quite a nut on what, liking liking to watch uh, horses race, and that's about that. But I I'm a mystery guy, and I read uh, John Sanford, Louise Penny, and and a number of others that I enjoy in my spare time. Mm-hmm. Very good. I might have to pick up the horse book. I also like thoroughbred racing, so I think that could be something I might enjoy as well. Um, the last question we ask is if you can imagine somebody in your life that, that you have viewed as successful and you don't need to give us a name at all, um, what's a trait about them that you think allowed them to be successful in their life? I, I think all the people that have been really successful uh, uh, and are in leadership positions are uh, uh, care about the people around them. And that care is what is extremely important. Um, you can't be a boss. You can't be a leader. You can't be a teacher if you don't care about the people around you. And uh, I think that characteristic is so central to success. Uh, we, we don't step on people's backs to be successful. We, we hold hands together and move forward. And I, I've uh, always uh, I've had some great uh, mentors who listened to what my interests were and helped me to mold those because they cared about me. And I've tried to do that with my students and the people I meet in life is uh, listen more than I speak and try and help them succeed and, uh, and uh, find, find their way. It, it's, it's easier said than done, but sometimes you, you, you just, you just got to do it. And that's especially true uh, right now. We're in difficult times coming off of COVID and some of the issues in, in the world. We need to listen to others and try and help everybody succeed. If we can't listen and talk uh, together with people, uh, we can't succeed together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great advice, Max. Wonderful. Well, Max, I do want to thank you again for your time today. It's, it's been a pleasure visiting with you and learning a little bit more about the pig genome. So again, uh, for our listeners, this is Dr. Max Rothschild, who's a professor emeritus from Iowa State University. Thank you again, Max. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to see you and talk with you again, Laura. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.